The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Changing the Game is a film about three high school students. They're all over the U.S. in Connecticut, New Hampshire, in Texas. And our film takes us into the lives of each one of them. It doesn't just necessarily look at the controversy or the sports. It really takes us into their personal journeys as they continue on their path and their lives as trans teens. Welcome to Top Docs. This is Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Michael Barnett, Claire Tucker, and Alex Schmitter the director and producers of Changing the Game. Changing the Game had its world premiere at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival and launched on Hulu in 2021, where it's currently available for streaming. The film is nominated for a 2022 Emmy for exceptional merit in documentary filmmaking. Director Michael Barnett is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker whose films include the Emmy-nominated Superheroes, Gore Vidal, The United States of Amnesia, Becoming Bulletproof, and The Mars Generation. Michael's the founder of Superfilms, a Los Angeles-based production company. Producer Claire Tucker is an Emmy Award-nominated television and film producer. Her films include The Mars Generation, Above and Beyond, NASA's Journey to Tomorrow, and Rhapsody in Black. Claire's the head of production at Superfilms. And producer Alex Schmitter is an award-winning producer and the director of Transgender Representation at GLAAD, the nation's leading LGBTQ media advocacy organization. He's associate producer of the documentary Disclosure and executive producer of the new film Stay On Board, The Leo Baker Story, which just had its world premiere at Outfest Los Angeles. So Mike, it's not often we get the chance to talk to three filmmakers at once. We had two producers and the director of Changing the Game. What did you learn by being able to talk to all three of these folks? Well, it was really fun talking to all three. I really liked the way they passed the mic around as they were answering the question. And I really got the sense of how they might have worked together as a team. You got the feeling that they could finish each other's sentences and get a sense of how they would have worked together in the editing room, maybe. I also really appreciated the transparency of this team. They were, I thought, extremely open when it came to, for instance, the issue of fairness, which is something that's brought up in the documentary and is somewhat controversial. And Michael did not hold back in offering his opinions about fairness or how the team dealt with it creatively in the construction of the film. Another interesting thing is how they embraced the idea of making this documentary for a wide general audience. They really wanted to reach as many people as possible, both in the trans community, but also in the general public. And I think change minds, just as the film is about changing the game. This film looks great. I think it's uh, visually very appealing. The young people in it are very appealing. Some of the adults have opinions that aren't as appealing. 
but it will really draw you in. One of the things that I always look for in a film is how are the secondary characters treated? Are they developed or are they just thrown in there as window dressing? And I think changing the game does a really good job of developing these so-called secondary characters, whether it's the parents or the grandparents of the main characters or the coaches or any number of other people. Each one of these folks is really given not only a fair treatment, but a dramatic turn. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us and share it with a friend. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now, our conversation with Michael, Alex, and Claire about their documentary, Changing the Game. Claire, Michael, and Alex, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah, echoing Claire, thanks so much for having us. Thrilled to be here. Alex, why do you make documentaries? I make documentaries a bit accidentally and now very intentionally and excitedly. I started on this journey with Claire and Michael about six, seven years ago, and that was really my first foray into documentary filmmaking. When they approached me, I quickly recognized what their vision was and to be surrounded by incredible documentary filmmakers who have been able to show me the way and how you treat the people who are at the center of your films with respect and dignity and awareness for how their stories enter into the world is something that I'm just especially passionate about because of how I know stories can connect us and familiarize us with the unfamiliar. So it's really the people for me. Claire, what do you think? I um, got into documentary filmmaking about seven years ago. I think I was working reality TV for like 12 years and just hit a wall because I was getting very discouraged that the content I was working so hard on didn't matter. And so I really wanted to just work on something that mattered and could potentially make a difference in the world. So I switched over to documentaries and there's just been no looking back. I love to tell stories that empower people that shed light on groups of people that maybe people aren't talking about or don't know enough about or stories that can inspire and educate and all the things. It's great. I love it. And Michael, what motivates you? Yeah, a little bit like Alex. I think I started making documentaries about 13 years ago now, but it was a little bit of an accident. I had come up as a cinematographer and I was shooting kind of like stylized commercial stuff. And I was also doing a lot of kind of handheld Verite stuff, working in, you know, reality TV as well. And I got these like sort of hybrid skills and the goal was always to become director. That's why I moved to Los Angeles was to make films. I came across this story in Rolling Stone magazine that I wanted to turn into a movie, a fiction film. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. And the producer that I was working with, who's super well-known, successful producer, was like, you're never going to be able to write this. Just grab a camera. You have the skills. You know what to do. Go do it. And I reached out to a couple of documentary filmmakers who were really, really successful and knew what they were doing. And I was like, teach me, show me the way. And I started. And since then, I continue to make documentaries for, I would say, almost very selfish reasons. I think when there's something in the world that needs a light shined on it, not that I'm necessarily the great arbiter shiner of that light, but selfishly, if I don't understand it, I'm going to get obsessed and do the deep dive and go do that work and do that journalism and be as rigorous as possible and trying to be as honest, as authentic and tell those stories. And I hope me and the team that I go on that journey with will have spent those years, you know, really doing those deep, truthful dives and hopefully 
the result will be something like changing the game that'll help other people contextualize things they don't understand. Speaking of shining a light on an issue, how did this film come together? Slowly. <laughs> the kind of genesis of this film is I came to the trans community through some sort of deeply personal connections. And the intention at the beginning wasn't to make a film. It was really just for me to be an ally and an advocate and to gain the tools and the knowledge necessary to do so for someone I, I really love. And while I was doing it, I came across Mac's story and his story was so compelling to me for a lot of reasons. Not only did it have the kind of drama of sports and all of that stuff, that's inherently good storytelling, right? It's like a sports season works, you know, to frame a movie around. But it had a lot of stuff that required me to do some internal investigating and help me contextualize a bunch of things that I didn't have answers for at the time internally. And that's when I, you know, I'd reached out to Alex and, also, and Claire as well. We'd already been making movies together. And we slowly began this journey of understanding how sensitive these kids' lives were and how to approach them, how to build that trust. And it took, yeah, years. So I have a question for you, Alex, which is you mentioned earlier that you also work for GLAAD, and I believe you're director of transgender representation at GLAAD, which for anybody who doesn't know is the nation's leading LGBTQ media advocacy organization. And I just was curious when you're making a film, because you serve dual roles, you're a producer of documentaries, you also have this important position at GLAAD. What's it like for you to wear these two hats, the creative mindset of a storyteller and also the big picture point of view of how the film may be viewed as an example of representation of transgender people? I take the responsibility extremely seriously. And as Michael and Claire will share in our collaborations, there's never a point that I am not honest about what is going to have impact beyond the screen and beyond the storytelling on real people's lives. And so it's certainly a balance when I'm in my role at GLAAD, I'm consulting and advising very high level, having those kinds of honest conversations, but not necessarily developing the kind of collaborative relationship that I was able to do with Michael and Claire because they saw in me the creative ability to tell a compelling story and look out into the world and understand and frame how is the story that we're telling going to arrive and reach and respect audiences. And, you know, they are truly the ones that saw in me before I saw in myself the potential that I could use my skill set for understanding this community and knowing the landscape of storytelling to leverage that into a creative position. And I will say this kind of collaboration cannot happen if we are not trusting of each other, respecting of what each other brings as contributors and able to have challenging, sometimes conflicting arguments. And I will say what ends up in changing the game, there were things that I said they will absolutely not be in there and they actually are in there. And I'm really happy they are because Claire, Michael, and I were able to wrestle with those things, no pun intended, but always puns intended. They came to me as someone at GLAAD and we continued on this journey as me with them and this film. And it just so happened we made a film that Glad as an organization and the community really got behind. And I think it's because of that expertise. I always carry in the back of my mind of a story doesn't live on its own. It lives in a history, in a culture, 
in a collection and a context. And as a storyteller, I will always be paying super close attention what kinds of stories we're telling and how we're telling them. And these stories live in the future too. And you have to take that into consideration. It's complex, right? That generative conflict is complex. Thinking about the past, present, and future, what you're doing and how you're going to contribute to the history, the now, and the future. And try to put something evergreen into the world that's a time capsule of now, but also speaks to where we've been and where we're going. It's complex stuff. It's really hard to do all these things. And when you build a team like this, it certainly helps that it doesn't make it by any means easy. It is difficult work debilitating myself. When Michael and I reached out to Alex, we didn't even know what the ask was. We were just like, hey, we're making this film. What do you think about that? And through a handful of conversations, we realized Alex would be immensely helpful as a major part of our team, which thankfully he was willing to come on and work with us. I hear from other filmmakers, you know, a handful of times, which is just a handful too many, who are working in the LGBTQ space. Oh, media rep from GLAAD reached out to me and I'm not going to call them back. I'm not going to write them back. Like they're going to, they want to change my film, ruin my film, bury my film. And like, that's never the case. It's like in a Venn diagram of someone who's like life's work is to support media stories in that space. And then someone who wants to make a singular film, there's a ton of overlap and it doesn't make any sense to be fearful, lean into it and sit back and learn and collaborate. So this issue of trans athletes competing in say high schools has become one of the main hammers that the right wing is using to pound on LGBTQ plus issues. Was that apparent when you started this project? Yes. And that's why when Claire and Michael reached out with this topic, I was extremely hesitant. All the red flags and sirens were going off like, no, 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 no. And part of that was because of my own discomfort with the subject matter, because we are all educated and digesting media from an umbrella and amalgamation of stories that are looking and sounding very similar. And I hadn't yet done the work that I also needed to do about why do we feel so uncomfortable or unsure of this topic or issue? So in my skepticism and hesitance and distrust, I also saw them and what their intention was and knew that it would be so important to give these young athletes their stories back when what was occurring at the time and is still occurring now is that trans athletes have their stories basically taken from them to be exploited to justify exclusion. And I think part of what I love about changing the game is you see Andrea, Mac, and Sarah, who are very different people, like on the surface, geographically, what they're interested in, their personalities, but also looking at how they are involved in their sports. Like Andrea is a really talented, committed, excellent runner. And her story got blown up into a national news story because she was winning some races, not all races, but no one ever cared when she was losing a race. And then you can look at her next to Sarah, who's just someone who loves to ski and is doing that. And there is no media fodder around that because she's not excelling. And so I think it was really important. And I think Michael and Claire were ahead of their time in even considering the cliff dancing that they were entertaining about telling these stories. 
the film unfortunately only became more relevant as time went on, but it is unfortunate that we did see this coming because the topic is easily exploitable for people who don't know who trans people are. And it's easy to scapegoat and fear monger against a community that you don't know. And sports has become that flashpoint because of people's emotions around that. And I will also say, I can't help myself, but like this is part of a years long, very well-funded campaign from known hate groups to not only discriminate against and bar trans kids from being able to live as themselves in society, but also to then overturn marriage, Roe v. Wade, all of, it's all connected. Michael, it's beautifully shot. And especially that opening sequence of Max training is incredibly crafted. There's such an intention on our end to apply craft intensely because for the first couple of years, this film was self-funded. And not that we were necessarily trying to make a blockbuster, but my biggest fear was that the film was going to struggle to find an audience. So positioning the film in a way that expanded that audience and kept the film out of a niche space was sort of everything, music, intention, cinematography, editing, rhythm, spacing, to make the film really feel contemporary, like a Nike ad for 90 minutes and to sustain that kind of tone, style, and tension. Certainly not easy to do given our budget constraints and crew size or no crew. You said Nike, I was going to say sports drink commercial worthy. Mm -hmm. I think this is a compliment, but I want to ask you the question about this. It's an aesthetic choice. And I can imagine some people saying, hey, this is about realism and advocacy. This should be grittier. Have you gotten any of that? No, not really, actually. I think in, in the sort of modern landscape of documentary, the more cinematic you are, the better chance you have of finding space, because I think the sophistication of audience right now is so elevated. We're living in a, an extraordinary time to tell these real stories because you can get out of what I think that expectation was of the past, that verite, that fly on the wall, observational approach, which we still do. The film has plenty of that. And I would say it's not fly on the wall. It's much more intense because of the relationships we've developed with everybody in the film. We're no longer there observing. We are there experiencing, going through in real time, emotionally connected to them. And if anyone says that crosses the ethical line of journalism, I don't care. I really do not care in any way because this is how I make movies. And I want to be here. And I want to connect with these people and these families. And I want that to show. And I also want to show them in a beautiful light. I mean, that literally, because to bookend this, I am a very literal human. So I want beautiful light. Truly, like beautiful light shined on every one of these humans. And I want them to look extraordinary. I want these uh, kids to be the hero of their journey. And in order to do that, I want to use the camera intentionally to create uh, an aesthetic that is heroic. Michael, we've talked a lot about how you use the container of sport. And you spoke a little bit about the Nike commercial feel to this. Can you talk more broadly about how we usually see athletes treated and how we've seen that differently for trans athletes and what you attempted to do with the craft? Yeah, I think there's a cinematic language that's existed for a long time that's really stylized. And I think when you're sort of framing that question, if anyone would give us any kickback, the only reason they would give us kickback is because they're being transphobic, right? Because there's already the expectation 
in branded, in media, in whatever it may be, to create heroes out of athletes and to use imagery to support that perception. So for us to just mimic, you know, what's going on already, to put these kids in that kind of light, in that kind of cinematography, in that kind of style aesthetic, is only putting them on par with their uh, other athletes, their peers, who some are a little further along in their journey, professional getting paid, whatever it may be. But it was very intentional for us to do that, to use that cinematic language that has existed for a long time. And if it's unexpected, it's only unexpected because we expect trans athletes to be shown as what? Not heroes? I think it's like interesting to think about what you shoot, how you craft that editorially and how that turns into the final thing. We don't talk a lot about this because no one really ever asks, right? Because we're doing quick interviews and talking about the kind of culture wars that the film touches on right now. But when you're kind of beating out writing a story in post and you're getting it on a wall while you're working on a cut and you're looking at a scene and you're kind of thinking about the scene of, okay, here's the architecture of this. Here's, you know, because I think of everything as like mathematics at first. And then you kind of get into the emotion as you keep going through the process and refining because you got to build that skeleton first and that requires structure and architecture. And you look at that scene with Mac and Chelsea and that scene very early on is like, Mac wrestles at state. And then it's got a bunch of like bullets of what's happening underneath on the board, in your script, whatever it may be. And by the time we're done, that scene is no longer called Mac at state. It's called Everybody Loses. And it's a real hard journey to find that evolution. And by the time I'm done, I don't want a single scene to be Mac at anywhere or Andrea at anywhere. I want it to have an emotional name and an emotional beat. And everyone in the room should know exactly what that is because we've been editing this damn thing for 18 months. This film is a very authentic, honest telling of their lives in this moment, in this year of high school for them. But we take that truth and we've shot countless hours and we craft it into these ways that hopefully galvanizes and turns their story into something really crystallized. In order for us to tell their story as succinctly and honestly as possible, it actually requires a lot of craft. Taking a year and a half of filming and cutting that into one third of 90 minutes. Michael, you mentioned earlier that you had read about Mac, but can you guys talk more about the casting process and how you found not only the two folks who ended up being in the film with Mac, Sarah Rose and Andrea, all of whom are from very different places, very different backgrounds, but also just talk about the people not in the film. I'm sure you investigated lots of stories and talked to lots of people. The first athlete we shot with was down in San Diego. He was a gymnast. And he hurt himself very early on in shooting. And we really liked them and their family. But his mother was actually a real sort of community builder in the trans youth, sports youth community. And she basically became our early casting director because she had this sort of Facebook online group where parents came and shared their stories. And then after we brought her on, we also brought on Chris Mosier, who's a very well-known professional athlete who also happens to be transgender. Between them and us and Claire and Alex, we just cast a very wide net. We ended up shooting with seven kids in total. Sam hurt himself. And then we also had two other kids that we had to very, very painfully make some tough decisions editorially and not include them in the film for a multitude of reasons. Some of it was mental health. Some of it was just story. I think one of the unique things about casting is there's this assumption that there's trans kids taking over sports everywhere. And there's like none. I called every state, spoke to a trillion superintendents of a trillion school systems, 
asking about transgender athletes and 99% said we don't have any. And first of all, I don't necessarily even know that that's true, that they don't have any, but they didn't want to have any. They certainly didn't want to share if they had any. But yeah, it was a lot of work to find these kids. Going back and thinking about the headwind of making inroads into these school districts, it really didn't matter whether it was Texas or Seattle or Connecticut. Every single time we would try to get some kind of approval or permission to film in public schools, on public school grounds, we were met with such resistance, whether these, whatever, principals, superintendents, teachers, educators, coaches knew that they were being discriminatory. And we would often just say, hey, you know, if this was LeBron James' kid and we were showing up with cameras, you would welcome us with open arms. And instead, we're met with resistance and more than resistance, absolute refusal to allow us to film more often than not. That's why there's very little footage that isn't in public spaces at public events in the movie, because we were never allowed in public high schools to film. I know that's always a challenge and can definitely affect the course of the film that ultimately gets made. But it's funny because I didn't really notice that those obstacles were there for you because you did such a great job of getting access to what you did get access to. I just want to add, because I think this is a powerful line, at one of the schools we were filming at, the head of the PE department was kind of like monitoring us and making things difficult for us all day long. And finally, at the end of the day, he realized, you know, we just roll our cameras. We're not manipulating anything. We have no agenda. Just want to see what's happening. So at the end of the day, he apologized to me and he was like, I'm really sorry. I think we got off to the wrong foot. I didn't really understand what was going on. And to be honest with you, we are more prepared for a school shooting than a transgender athlete. And that just blew me away. Family support's a key theme in the film. We meet Max's grandparents who are raising him, both of Sarah's parents and Andrea's mother. And they're all incredibly supportive of either their child or their grandchild, as the case may be. Not only did I find myself being inspired by what these parents and grandparents were saying and their attitudes, but it began to sink in that that kind of support is a critical pillar in ensuring the stability and well-being of trans youth. As you were getting to know these three student athletes, how did your impressions of the parents and in the one case grandparents evolve as well? All these families, Michael and Claire, were developing relationships before a camera was ever rolling. And one of the stories I love most is that I do work at GLAD. I have established some credibility as someone that is trustworthy. I'm in the community. I'm working for the community. And when we wanted to reach out to Andrea because her story was becoming a national news story, I reached out to her because she was on social media and immediately got a response from her mom and Ghazi. Like, and who are you? And what what do you want? And I need to be involved. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that because that is a parent looking out for their child and making sure that they are protected from anyone who's going to do anything that is dangerous or irresponsible or uncomfortable. This is a parent who gets the sensitivity and the consequence of what happens when you are someone who's in the public eye. And that's why when we were ultimately selecting who would be in the film, it was top of mind for us to make tough decisions about 
which kids, even though they were saying yes to the opportunity, we maybe needed to look out for them in a different kind of way as documentary filmmakers to make sure that the film, which we hoped would live in a big world that would be seen by a lot of people, their lives would be enhanced and not made worse or more vulnerable. And Mac, Andrea, and Sarah are all thriving because of the film. And I think that is something I am just so incredibly proud of. It's not coincidental that these kids have a lot of love and support because they are athletes. The fact that they have to be so courageous to be an athlete, to take on the pressure of being a trans youth athlete, you would have to have the love and support. If they didn't have that love and support, there is no way they would go out on a limb and be so open in public. It is essential for them to live this life and to be who they are, to live authentically, to play sports, to excel in those sports, for them to have that love and support, given the headwinds, the hatred they have to endure just to do that. So I think if you're probably, you know, young and really feeling vulnerable and marginalized, whatever community that is, if you don't have love and support from your family in your community, you're probably not going to go out and be that public, unless you're an absolute born activist, which some people are. It does seem to me that a lot of, in particular, trans youth who play sports have to be activists in order to do so and need that love and support from their families and have to be an activist just to go kick a soccer ball, to go ski, to go run, whatever it may be that we all take for granted. I was struck when you were speaking with the parents and maybe especially the grandparents, how they were still struggling with pronouns. She's just a typical boy, a typical teenage boy, Max, grandfather says. And obviously this speaks to their own personal struggle to deal with the transition. But also I think these scenes speak to many of us in the audience have had this challenge. I, I won't bore you with my embarrassing misgendering stories, but I think a lot of us have been there, right? Were you thinking about that in those scenes? I think it's lovely to see Grandpa Roy struggle, but also try. And I think when you or I or whomever struggles with pronouns. I don't know, Alex, it's really for you to speak on, but there's an intention of at least attempting, which feels, you know, that it's coming from a place of respect and support. And I always say, I'm a cis dude, and I have spent some years in telling this story, but it's not necessarily my job to know every single thing about the trans experience. It's my job to be here to create a safe space for people who are experiencing that experience. And I don't have to necessarily know everything about it. And I can make mistakes. And that's okay, as long as my intention is to create a safe space. And I would add, I think, too, intention is important. And then thinking about the impact. So when we are having conversations about how much of the misgendering would take place, how much of the prior names would be included, or what would be featured in the doc, we were thinking about a wide audience. Who would be coming to this film? Who would be seeing it? And you may be surprised to hear that some of the most powerful audience reception was from trans people who appreciated seeing Grandma Nancy and Grandpa Roy struggling, but trying, because that mirrors their own experiences. If we were to portray an unreality of that, it yeah, it, from zero to 60 in no seconds, that overnight things are just wonderful and peachy, like that's not realistic. And I think people resonate with that journey because by the end of the film, you see Grandma Nancy isn't really messing up anymore. She's done that work. She's gone on her own journey. For all of us, I think that is what's compelling and relatable is we're not born knowing everything, but we are capable of learning and growing. 
I think there's no more powerful scene in the movie for showing that pathway than the scene with Grandma Nancy saying to Mac, you got to lose this weight. I'll do whatever I can to help you. I'll go run with you. And he's like, what, really? <laughs> and she gets out there and she runs. And it's just such an amazing scene. There's an additional line she says that everyone laughs at, but I think it's so meaningful and significant. She says, I may not get there as quick as you do, but I'll run with you. If you listen to those words, it can be expanded beyond running down the street. She's going on this journey. It's going to take time. She's going to make mistakes, but she's coming on it. For me, as a trans man myself, who the first film I ever saw was Boys Don't Cry, and I thought, well, if I'm myself, I'm going to be killed. I have no future. No one is going to love me. These stories of love and support can be life-saving because it can show people who have never seen that possibility that it's not only a reality, but that it's probably more common than it's often represented as. Can you talk about interviewing people at sporting events who were opposed to the idea of these athletes competing with, I think, often with their children? That was actually fairly easy. I mean, people were very willing to share their thoughts with us. They did not hold back. They didn't think that those thoughts were wrong. You know, I think they thought they were advocating for their kid or advocating for the sanctity of the sport or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we literally had people like lining up in some places just to come talk to us. At one point in time, I was like, I can get to all the people that want yeah. to share their hateful opinion. That woman who, you know, was sort of talking about Andrea and the unfairness of it directly to Andrea, which I consider to be assault. She's there without a child competing. She showed up just to protest Andrea. So she didn't come to that event for any other reason than to have a public forum for her hatred. And what's astonishing about this is that when people are talking about Title IX and like feminism and women's rights, I don't think most people understand that when they're trying to look at children or anyone and determine whether they're masculine or feminine enough based on physical appearance or any of that, it's undermining the ability for people to be who they are in the diversity that exists across gender, not just within trans people's gender. And so it's frustrating to see that. But I think with conversations we've had around the film, fortunately, there is now the dots being connected, that regulation of bodies, especially trying to make assumptions about people's bodies just by looking at them, is going to end up harming a lot of people and most specifically girls and women more generally. I was really struck that some of them did seem very hateful, but then there are, and I'm being very careful because I disagree with these folks, but some of the parents, especially around the wrestling, say it's not fair. And what's really interesting is Max says it's not fair. I should be wrestling with the boys. I'm a man. This is a complicated issue, right? Everyone wants to jump into the notion of fair. I say fuck fair because when it comes to the issue of fair or survival, I'm going to pick survival, right? When we look at just the stats, we look at the suicide rate, we look at how marginalized this community is, how excluded this community is. To be able to just be included in the institution of sports, youth sports in particular, that have nothing but positive benefit, whether you're winning or losing, right? Mental health, physical health, community, friendship, discipline, picket. It. it feels wildly unfair to me 
to exclude them in order to say, here's a trophy or here's a life. So fuck fair is where I start. There's this interesting paradox because whether Mac is right or wrong about fair, there is no fair because if Mac isn't allowed to wrestle the men and that's not fair and Andrea shouldn't be running against women and that's not fair. So what is fair for trans athletes? Because what we've now established, according to our lead subject, who is trans, is that it's not fair. But it sounds to me that none of it's fair if we're only focused on fair. So the only thing that is fair is exclusion. I guess that's what we're left with, which doesn't feel fair to me in any way, shape or form. I was just going to add to that, that as a collegiate athlete myself, sorry for the brag, there just is no such thing as fair, right? Some athletes have a parent who play with them every single day and help their skills. Some people have more money than other athletes and can afford private coaches and whatnot. All kinds of body types are different. There are all kinds of components that weigh into it. We always talk about Michael Phelps, whose body doesn't make any lactic acid, which is what makes an athlete feel fatigue. And he's probably one of our most celebrated athletes ever. There's just no such thing. That has been what has revealed itself over the years of taking this film out is that, again, Michael Phelps is a celebrated athlete because of the natural things that his body does. Simone Biles or Castor Semenya have their bodies under scrutiny and regulation. And so it's asking the questions, whose bodies are regulated and whose bodies are celebrated and why? And once we start doing that, it starts to come to light exactly what we're talking about in terms of fair, which is that it isn't. And to Claire's point, people like to compress all these things together as if the way your physicality is immediately makes you good at sports. Like it would surprise many people. I'm 4'11", 5'2", on my driver's license, that I am extremely good at sports, including volleyball, basketball. People would move in when I would come to the plate to play in baseball, and then I would hit a home run. You can't make those assumptions based on body type, and yet we do, and that is part of our cultural, societal way that we are wired to make those assumptions that usually just aren't true or accurate. As Max suggests that he's been bullied more by adults than kids, and by the way, I think one of the secret messages of this film is younger people are nicer than us older people. You show some of the trolling comments on Facebook and what those look like. And some of them are from Ben Shapiro and horrible. And then Max sort of offhandedly says that once he was alone and he took too many sleeping pills and sort of trails off. And I'm struck by the kind of tangential way this is brought into here. And then almost right after we see this horrifying statistic that 40% of all trans youth attempt suicide. I mean, Max tried to kill himself. And we are giving the most conservative data we can in order to live in a safe space and not be questioned in what we're presenting. So I think those stats might be actually higher significantly. And I think when we look at Mac, who seems to be a really confident, successful, extraordinary young man who still is struggling with his mental health, struggling with suicide, struggling with that pressure, right? That hatred that he's enduring from famous adults with huge platforms who are using their platforms to bully him, to intimidate him, to threaten him. How terrifying is that? He's a teenager. So I think in our film, instead of just putting a stat up to show someone that you wouldn't expect to be as vulnerable as he is. So it's really profound to me. That's the scene that's toughest for me to endure because I love Mac. 
and I spent a lot of time with him and I'm very close with him and his family. And to think that he is that vulnerable at any given time is terrifying. There's often this concern trolling that happens about if we give healthcare to trans youth, what's going to happen? Well, what happens when you don't and when you withhold support and you remove systems that are there to show love and acceptance is those statistics and that inability to feel like you can live in the world just intensify. And these suicide statistics aren't as high as they are because trans people are less well-adjusted to the world. It is that we live in a world that is so unnecessarily challenging in every single way, from employment to housing, to healthcare, to sports, for your entire life, that sometimes that can feel like the only way. So being able to show that Mac is as strong as he is and he's still facing this, I think is really important for people to see because I... I wasn't one of those 40% when I was growing up, but that's only because I had the intense unconditional love for my family. And I also had a sense of self that was beyond what I probably should have, but continues to carry me forward. Every time we end a screening or there's a call to action when we're having a talk back, I always end by saying, you know, you have the capacity to like save someone's life just by respecting them and accepting them. We all have that capacity. We all could be a grandma Nancy or an Angazi. We just have to do it. One of the things that I found most interesting in the film is the role of the coaches, because the parents and the grandparents, they're giving unconditional love. But the coaches are doing a job, which is to train and teach and prepare these student athletes for competition and for life. Andrea's coach is not only incredibly supportive of Andrea as an athlete and seems to be a really good coach, but also has a great sense of the bigger picture as well. Max coach seems more sort of no nonsense, just here's what I need to do to train this basically, you know, world-class athlete that I've got on my hands. Can you talk about the role of the coaches in the film and the role that they play with transgender athletes in general? It's wildly important. It's hugely important. I was so impressed by Coach Clark and Coach Brian, and I can say that there were other coaches that we filmed with who were coaching kids that didn't make it into the final film who were just misgendering all game long, all practice long, you know, right in front of us. And you know what? That Intentionally. Probably. And that athlete didn't go on to continue playing. Acceptance just makes such a huge difference. It is interesting just being out there, considering we shot with other athletes as well, and seeing how the coach is a powerful figure in a young kid's life. They are given a position of power in these lives to not just sort of coach them in their sport, but to inform them and shape them and guide them in ways that are really profound. I'm optimistic that Coach Bryan's and Coach Clark's exist because Listen, Coach Clark is a hard ass. He's like a very prototypical high school wrestling coach. If you opened a dictionary, you would find a picture of Coach Clark is what this is supposed to be. He was super tough with us because it got in the way of the way that he coaches and practices. And I think it's really interesting that Mac is his first sort of trans athlete. I think it's really interesting that given that sort of circumstance, he finds a way to evolve very, very quickly 
and say, listen, I didn't even know what transgender was, but my job is to protect this kid and to give him the tools to not only succeed on the mat, but in life. And he knows that's his job. And he becomes Max's second greatest protector, I would say, after Grandma Nancy, who is a guardian angel. Coach Clark, there's an expectation of who and what this man might be living in Texas, being an MMA fighter, that he would make a different decision. And he doesn't. He does everything with empathy, tough empathy, which makes him a great coach. And Coach Brian is like an elevated human. So he's just a gift as well. But it does give me hope that there's educators and coaches out there that are trying to evolve in real time and understand this from a deeply empathetic place and understand that their job is to hold these kids up, to support them, to lift them up and to give them the tools to go succeed. And some coaches do that and some do not. And we experience both. Andrea and Sarah are both young people of color and therefore face additional forms of discrimination. Their situations are quite different from each other. Andrea is black. Sarah is originally from Cambodia, I believe, and is adopted and her parents are white. Can you talk about the additional discrimination that these young people face? Being a person of color affects absolutely everything in your life. And I think when Ngozi is talking about the real world safety concerns for Andrea, it is very specifically about race because we know there's an epidemic of violence facing trans women of color specifically. The American Medical Association declared that a few years ago, and it's a compounding issue of sexism, racism coming together to just make someone's life more difficult. And it's not helped by the fact that there's a lot of cultural dialogue that assumes that trans people are only white that they, we aren't people of color. And it, there's been an interesting conversation happening. I'm not going to name names, but saying that the LGBTQ community is somehow different and separate from people of color, when in fact, people of color are LGBTQ and vice versa. And so I think when we're looking at how Andrea and Sarah navigate the world, you can see in the film and what I know of both Andre and Sarah in their own being and lives is that they are paying a lot of attention to the world around them and how they're being perceived and what safety looks like. And so even the way I think how you are interacting with the world is informed by these things you just have to know that you could be in potentially more danger. And I think Ngozi speaks really well to like, raising a child who is a trans person of color, especially a trans girl of color. Like you have to take life and death extremely seriously. And that's not hyperbolic. When we were filming in Connecticut, you know, we had all these parents lined up to tell us what they didn't like about it. And they're very aggressively saying like, you know, these are, these are boys running against our girls. And I honestly felt like what they really wanted to say was these are black boys running against our white girls. It was horrible. It just made me so nervous for Andrea and Terry. It was hard to deny being in Connecticut, which is, I guess, typically thought of as a pretty liberal enclave in America, to deny in any way that the sort of very outspoken hatred we were experiencing wasn't in some way, shape or form tied to race. Because we are shooting other stories that were with trans boys. And 
there were certainly headwinds and very difficult things happening institutionally, right, from communities, whatever it may be. But I have to say, when it came to people of color, the headwinds shifted. And even given Mac in Texas, it was a white dude wrestling. And I think people were up in arms over the fact that he was wrestling girls instead of boys. There wasn't much else to it. There was so much more to what was going on with Andrea in Connecticut. And it was undeniable. The fervor was different. You explore different modes of advocacy. Sarah is very involved, giving talks, drafting legislation. Terry, another Connecticut trans athlete runner, gently corrects Andrea when she says she is not an activist. Terry says some advocates talk, others advocate through action, and that Andrea's actions encourage Terry to be herself. And I found this very heartening, you know, we all can pursue activism through our own channels. And it's another way of being ourselves. That's one of the most profound parts for me of the film, because as a trans guy who was growing up, I never saw representation of trans people getting a job or doing anything outside of protesting in the streets, which protesting in the streets is great. However, again, 411-52 on my driver's license, I'm maybe not the best with a sign in the streets. That's not maybe where I'm going to be most effective. So I think it's also seeing all of them expand what it looks like to be an advocate or an activist, hopefully allows people to find where they can best fit and lean into what feels best and how they can feel most excited or interested in contributing. And it doesn't look all one way. That being said, for Andrea and Mac, in some ways, they became accidental activists. I mean, they just really wanted to play their sport and do that. But by the nature of the media attention that they got and fighting to be a part of that, they had to then become advocates and activists in a different kind of way. And so the other part of this is I think juxtaposing their journeys versus Sarah Rose's where she was able to choose that path. We always say that she looks and sounds like mini AOC. Like she's clearly has a knack for it, loves it, is studying communications right now in school. And so I think there's also something to be said about agency, getting to decide how and when you show up and what's best for you and your life. And my hope is that trans people and really everyone, like as we keep going through, are able to pursue things that they're interested in and that fulfill them just like educating and storytelling does for me in a way that's authentic to them and not trying to force something that doesn't fit because that's what they think they have to do. You call out the Trevor Project in your credits. If we want to get involved, what can we do? There are so many different ways to get involved and it speaks to the last question. How do you do so authentically? So if you work in the documentary film space, it's identifying documentaries for people to watch and be moved and hopefully be activated. Changing the Game is one of those. And I don't say that because we're on this call about the film, but because I have seen rooms turn 180 degrees after they get to know these kids and they're interested and curious and wanting to open up and learn more. So if it's about supporting youth, the Trevor Project is a wonderful organization that you can volunteer and be on the hotline helping young people navigate these really difficult struggles just by being someone that they can talk to. You could follow on social media, just diversifying your social media and who you're following and what you're hearing and listening to. Athlete Ally was an instrumental 
and critical resource for us as filmmakers and myself and learning about inclusion in sports more broadly. So like following Athlete Ally and Chris Mosier and there's so many other organizations that I could list a name, but I think it's all about identifying, you know, if you're a lawyer, how can you get involved in law and policy? If you are a barista, how can you learn that referring to people in gendered ways maybe isn't the best way to do it? And it maybe you can change your language to something more inclusive. Like it can be small, it can be interpersonal, it could be institutional. There's a spectrum. And I just want people to find a way that they can feel good about the way they're making people's lives better. Can you give us an update on Andrea, Sarah, and Mac? I see them quite frequently, actually, because the Changing the Game Impact campaign has been fast and furious since we came out on Hulu. So Andrea is in school. She has a part-time job. Many people don't know she loves languages, so is learning or knows 10 languages. Sarah is at university as well. She's also a camp counselor and really enjoys that because it is summer so that she's out in the woods somewhere. And she's studying communications. And Matt, is pursuing a lot of advocacy in ways that he feels really good about, has been involved in some campaigns with Lambda Legal, has gotten really involved in the Changing the Game campaign, which takes us into rooms and does educating on gender, inclusion in sports. Aside from the typical struggles we're all facing, they seem to be really doing well and growing into themselves, which has been one of the most rewarding parts of this documentary experience is seeing them grow they're no longer kids, they're young adults. And watching that journey and transformation has been quite incredible. I wanna congratulate you on achieving what you set out to achieve, which is to give these young athletes their stories back. And not only did you do that, but you did so in an incredibly powerful and artful way. So congratulations and thank you and congratulations on your Emmy nomination and best of luck. We look forward to hearing more from you all in the future. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ken and Mike. Claire, do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or more recently that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves? Two documentaries I've seen in maybe the last four or five months that I thought were really outstanding. One was, it was actually a frontline episode called A Thousand Cuts about the Philippine president who is basically at war with the press. And it's just led by this incredible female lead character and it's really well done. And then the other thing that I think stuck out to me recently was a three-part series. I think it was on HBO called Nuclear Family. I just, I loved that, that story and the way that was done as well. How about you, Alex? It's so tough. I focus a lot of my work on LGBTQ storytelling, and there are so many impressive, amazing documentaries by queer filmmakers that it would be hard to list all of them. Do you have the name of one? Uh, no Ordinary Man is about Billy Tipton, a jazz musician who was a trans man, and Chase Joint is the director of that film, and goes on a journey of sharing the significance of Billy Tipton and his life with the Tipton family, sort of uncovering what that history is. That's just one of many. And how about you, Michael? I also think, Alex, it's a good time to talk about the Leo Baker story. Oh, yes. Is that a hidden gem? 
since no one's seen it, it hasn't premiered yet, I would say it's very, hopefully not for long. The Leo Baker story is about Leo Baker, who's a celebrated skateboarder who was on the women's national team on his way to the Olympic Games in Tokyo 2020. And it's him having to navigate being true to himself and or continuing on this path to the Olympics, which increasingly did not align with who he knew himself to be on the inside. And so contending with societal pressures of success, of who you are as a person. Michael and I went to the premiere at Outfest last week where it won the Audience Award. And it was incredible. We were so inspired. 